What do you know about that, man? <laughs> That was pretty fun. <laughs> I'm ready to go. All right, well, let's go then. All right. Let's actually do a formal introduction this time because I wasn't happy with the last podcast. So You aren't? That wasn't at all. I, I listened to it again and I was like, man, that just wasn't what I'm shooting for. So I'm Chase Winnegar, host of the podcast, Lee McClellan, co-host. Hope everyone's doing well. And today's guest is Zach Couch. How y'all doing? Zach with a K. Zach with a K. But you know, it's so confusing. Because you ever look, so I emailed you last week and asked K or H, because I see it both different ways. And you emailed me back and said, Zach with a K. And then I immediately looked up at your email and it's Zach with a H. So, I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. And I literally see your name spelled every which way. Yeah. So, I've worked for the state for over 15 years. Mm -hmm. When they first, and I've started as an intern. Mm -hmm. So, when I first got my email account set up, it was with an H. And... I uh, asked to change it, and they said, well, by the time we get it changed, you're an intern, it'll, you'll be long gone. So, okay. okay. So then fast forward several years, and it just maintained it with an H. Um, one time I asked to have it changed to a K, and they did that. But then as soon as they did that, I started getting phone calls from people saying, hey, we can't get you to respond to email. Your emails are bouncing back. What's going on? So I, oh, I called the IT guys and said, change it back to an H. <laughs> don't, don't worry about it. It's not worth making this fight over. So that was that was the end of that story. So Zach with a K, what is your uh, job title? Tell us I'm, what you do. I'm the at-risk species biologist. Tell me some at-risk species. At risk species. We've got about, uh, about 500 of them in the state. 500 of them. 500, yeah. We've got a state wildlife action plan that uh, we're getting ready to start a revision to mm -hmm. uh, this upcoming year that lists all of our non-game species that are uh, essentially at risk of becoming endangered or mm -hmm. threatened. Okay. So we've got everything from various salamanders, several different species of bat, uh, birds, fish, mussels, mm -hmm. crayfish, you name it. Yeah, I'll say that I think the species you deal with go overlooked by your average outdoorsman or outdoorswoman quite a bit, you know what I mean? Like, I mean, because I mean, they obviously aren't hunted for or fish for, or trap for, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, so I'll say that in the past couple of years, my appreciation for those species has really gone up since I started here for one, because before I started here, I wasn't going in a cave with you and seeing all these bats, you know? Mm -hmm. And they were, like I said, kind of out of sight, out of mind. But once you go into an environment like that and you see them, then it's something you become pretty much in instantly interested in, because I mean, it's one of the coolest environments you can go in. And then also, I started dating my, my girlfriend and she, like a, a date night for us all of a sudden became going to a vernal pool and looking for salamanders. You know what I mean? And before I dated her, I probably didn't do that a whole lot. So I'd say over the past two or three years, my interest and knowledge of the species that you deal with has just gone up and up and up. And honestly, they're some of the more interesting species that we have. You know, you think about a, a deer, a turkey, or everything's pretty interesting, but the things that some of the at-risk species can do and the, the way their habits and how they survive, I mean, it's, it's so much different than what we're used to that it's really interesting. That's my take on it. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the, the interesting thing I see is, you know, I've got two kids that are in elementary school mm -hmm. and I go to do their career days. Mm -hmm. And I think back to when I was a child and you're yeah. out poking around in the woods yeah. and when you're in elementary school and younger, those are the species that you're more focused on. Is mm -hmm. oh, let's go out here and try to catch a frog, or let's go try to catch yeah. a crawdad, or something like that. Mm -hmm. and then you start kind of growing up, and you forget about all those things. Mm -hmm. And uh, for me, at least, I didn't start thinking about all the uh, the non-game species that we have in the state until I went to school, tried to figure out in college what I want to be when I grow mm -hmm. up. Biology is what it hit on, and 
you start looking real quick and well you know there's there's deer there's turkey there's all this stuff that people think about but there are hundreds of thousands of species out there that nobody's done any research on Mm -hmm. and so if you really want to look at something and really discover something neat go look at some of the non-game species instead that's true i mean i I think that it's probably true for all of us here i know it's true for me that when we were a little kid we were nine or ten years old we were going into the little creek in the backyard and flipping those rocks and seeing what we could find and then once we got our driver's license (laughs) you know that kind of tapered off Mm -hmm. at least it did for me i don't Mm -hmm. know if it did for you guys or not oh and now it's kind of like boy scouts oh it's picked back up i loved it and then you get your learner's permit and you're like well not as interested now <laughs> you know, i uh, i was i was driving to louisville yesterday from frankfurt after work and uh i was going through shelbyville and there's that neighborhood over there called osprey cove mm-hmm. and there's uh, uh there was four little kids i don't know how old they were i was just driving down the interstate and having to look over and see and there were four little kids over there in the creek playing around and i was like yes those are my yeah. uh, doing it right finally because yeah. you're so used to seeing kids just glued to ipads and cell phones and stuff these days it's it's sad, but those kids were out there playing in the creek, and I was proud of them. So yeah. that, that just kind of relates back to this. I want to give them a shout out today. <laughs> the the <laughs> farm that I hunt on up in Owen County, uh, we spend as much time up there during non-hunting season with the mm-hmm. kids as we do during hunting season because my kids would, if you gave them the choice of what do you want to do today, you want to mm-hmm. go see a mover, you want to go out and go catch crawdads in a creek or mm-hmm. go try to look for a snake, they're going to pick, yeah, let's go outside and flip some rocks and mm-hmm. see what we can find. Good. You know, so yeah. it's more interesting for them. They can run around and play outside, burn some energy off. It's a, what works kids out good do for, for fun is what we did when we were grounded and in trouble because yeah. you couldn't leave the house. <laughs> that was torture. Oh, yeah, that's now, true. Making them go outside now is yeah. the opposite. Like right now where I live, I don't have a, like it's important to me to have at least some form of water on the property, you know, like in the backyard, just a small creek is all it takes or something like that. And when I grew up, I grew up with uh, Clear Creek in the backyard. Mm-hmm. So I had Clear Creek back there. And before that, we lived on a property that backed up to Guest Creek Lake. So I had that. And going back there and, and messing around on, on those, uh, you know, creeks and lakes and things were, were great. And it's like actually important to me to have that opportunity available. Because, I mean, I don't want the kids sitting in there when I have kids. I don't want them sitting in there watching TV 24 hours, mm-hmm. you know, a day or all their free time at least. I'd rather them have the opportunity to go back there and be able to do something with it. But yeah, that's To be honest with you, that's one of the things that I grew up the same way. I had woods and water mm-hmm. right out the back door. Yeah. And so working for the state, I've done a lot of work with the Heritage Land Conservation Fund board where they go out and acquire sometimes smaller tracts of land in uh, – more urban areas mm-hmm. for people to use as just outdoor recreation space. And, and initially when I see them do that, I'm like, man, price per acre, that's awful high. Why are we buying this? And then I have kids and I realize, oh, wait a minute. Some, for some people, this 50-acre tract in Oldham County yeah. that has a little creek in it, they mm-hmm. may be the only spot that they have to go out and no doubt. go play in the woods. And at that yeah. point, you know, in order to keep interest up for future generations, we need places like that. And that's, yeah, you know, when I lived in... Well, I've lived in you know Madison County and Franklin County and Shelby County. When I lived in those places, I, did, I probably took it for granted. But then I moved to Louisville, and now I really appreciate Long Run Park or you mm-hmm. know Cherokee Park or mm-hmm. uh, the Flo- the parklands of Floyd's Fork, mm-hmm. especially because those are places. There's so many people that live in suburbs that don't have an opportunity to do anything, but they can drive five minutes and get to a park. And actually, there's some pretty good little you know Floyd's Fork has obviously Floyd's Fork creek flowing through it, and there's a bunch of you know tributaries and places you can go and, and play around in the woods and those are good resources for people but let's get back to what you do zach so you said at risk species yep uh give me a few examples 
Uh, the one that I focus on the most is uh, I deal with the state's uh, bat program. So we've, bat got, program. we've got 15 species of bat in the state. Mm -hmm. uh, four of them are listed federally as either endangered or threatened. Mm -hmm. And we've got about uh, three or four more now that are at risk, meaning uh, their populations are declining. Um, in some cases, over the last uh, 10 years or so, we've seen a dramatic 80 to 90 percent loss mm -hmm. of the population of some of these species in the state due to white nose syndrome that I'm sure some folks have heard about on the news. And that's mm -hmm. the, so the, the way I actually met you, let's see, the first time I met you, I met you near Pine Mountain State Park down there at one of our field offices, I think, and then we took a, a drive, you know, 45 minutes to get five miles away as a crow flies mm -hmm. through the mountain roads, and then we literally, the bumpiest road I've ever driven on in my entire life was that little <laughs> creek bed, you said it was a county road. Yeah. There's a video I have on my <laughs> cell phone because we were driving the show truck, the Chevy, right? And uh, we were driving it down the road following Zach to where we were going to miss net these bats. And I have a video I took of Chad. We were both laughing so hard we were crying because this truck was bouncing around so bad. Like our heads were hitting the ceiling and smacking the windows. And it was the worst road I've ever driven in my life. But it was fun. Um, I've I'm, bottomed out a few times on strip jobs. Oh, yeah. This was worse. Covering elk hunts. I mean, me, we bottomed out to the pan. We, we, pan. we cover elk hunts. And we, I mean, we had to get a... Uh, repaired under our truck this year after our elk hunt because like you said you know you're you can't around. see it sometimes either you know it's, this, it's all covered in that this road this, zach took us, this road zach took us down was 10 times worse than a strip <laughs> job and it was it looked flat like it looked level but it was it was horrible it was like cobblestone almost uneven cobblestone but, um so that's how i met you down there in that area, misnetting bats. We had a unsuccessful night. I learned a lot about bats, even though we didn't find any because it was too cold and you had, mm -hmm. you know, there was equipment set up. And then we went back out and we went in a cave in Carter County and we found hundreds of bats. Right. I think our count that day was like 580 something, mm -hmm. if I'm not forgetting. And um, I learned a lot about bats that day. So just two days in the field with you, I feel like I learned a lot about what's not good for bats and what is good for bats. And, you know, we were down there exploring the white nose. But before we get too far, oh, you know, into this, the main reason that we wanted to make sure we had you on today was because you actually discovered the newest species in Kentucky, right? That's right. So the newest species. Yep. So, so you discovered that, and there's an opportunity out there. And we'll, uh, talk a little bit about that, but I want to hit back on the opportunity later. All right. So this is a project that I've actually been working on since 2006. Okay. Uh, part of my master's research when I was in graduate school was to do a species assessment on a uh, at the time, uh, a species of crayfish that nobody knew anything about, uh, particularly called the Louisville crayfish. Okay. Uh, it's called the Louisville crayfish, obviously, because it is found, uh, its worldwide distribution at the time was from streams in Louisville up into portions of Oldham County and then down into Bullock County. So uh, about three years of survey work in the streams and um, the result of that was that I had a pretty good hunch that what people had been calling one species of crayfish was actually two species. Okay. Uh, essentially, the species or the crayfish I was pulling out of Beargrass Creek, Carriage Creek, and Goose Creek didn't look the same as the, the crayfish I was pulling out of Pond Creek that people in the past had said, oh yeah, this is the Louisville crayfish. So it's essentially taken me additional 10 years uh, to prove the point that these are two separate species. That's okay. taken a lot of uh, genetics work. Mm -hmm. A uh, whole lot of uh, statistical mm -hmm. work, which I'm still finishing up right now. Yeah. But the end result of it is, like I said, we have, uh, this is our 65th species of crayfish mm -hmm. that we know occurs in Kentucky. And um, 
the, the good thing about when you describe a new species or when you discover a new species is when you write that manuscript that you get published to show the scientific community we have a new species in our hands, mm-hmm. um, you have, obviously have to put a name on it. Mm-hmm. Um, the scientific name is a little bit more rigorous in how you have to go about that. The genus is obviously yeah. set yeah. and then you're putting on the, the scientific name based on that second word uh, when people think of Latin names for species. Mm-hmm. The common name on the other hand it's not really regulated by science at all. Uh, so you have the option of naming a species, whatever you want to on the common name mm-hmm. side. Anything you want. Anything you want. So uh, that got the wheels turning in my head and I thought, well, you know, I can come up with some benign name like the Pond Creek Crayfish or something like that for it. Um, so creative. Yeah, or <laughs> instead I can, I can work through our Kentucky Wild Program auction off the naming rights to an individual or a corporation um, and in return we would get a uh, financial gain off of it that I can use for additional crayfish surveys throughout the state. We can get a partner who is uh, hopefully engaged in wanting to help us to save this species that we have just discovered and we can get some good PR out of it and get people in the state aware of the idea that Mm-hmm. There isn't just such thing as a crayfish. You know, we've yeah. got 65 species. They, we've got some species that the only place in the world you can find them is in Kentucky, just mm-hmm. like the new species that yeah. I found. So before we get into the naming of it, how do you, and you've briefly told me this before, how do you distinguish one species of crayfish from another? There's uh, several different morphometric or basically body shapes that you can look at. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're looking at, and, and with with crayfish and with invertebrates, a lot of times you're looking at really nuanced characters. Mm-hmm. So when you look at a taxonomic key, which is kind of like a flow chart that you use to identify animals that mm-hmm. biologists use, uh, when you flip to one for crayfish, mm-hmm. you may look at uh, how many bumps it has on the inside of its claws. And you know, species A might have seven of those bumps, species B might have 12 of those bumps. Mm-hmm. And then it sounds silly when you talk about that, you know, with bats, and we've talked about before, the difference between one species and another sometimes might be the thickness of an ankle bone or mm-hmm. how long a toe hair is. Well, mm-hmm. it's similar to fish. You think black crappie, white crappie, you're, exactly. counting, you're counting spines on the back. So, yeah. I mean, it's it's similar to how you identify fish in, in, in all species, really. But mm-hmm. when you talk about the number of bumps on the inside of a pincher, that immediately my mind goes to spines on right. the back of a fish or something like yeah. that. But as far as crayfish goes, you know, so that's one thing you look at. You have to look at the mandible, so basically the chewing mouth parts on it. Uh, some species will have a smooth mandible, mm-hmm. some species will have a dentate mandible, meaning there's little dentitions there. Uh, for a lot of species, you're actually looking at male reproductive structures that's or gonopods. That's where I was going. Yeah, that's that's the one everybody wants to talk about. So, <laughs> yeah. so essentially in order to identify some species of crayfish, you have to find uh, basically uh, viable males, meaning males that are ready to reproduce. Mm-hmm. And then you are looking at the shape of the gonopod or the male reproductive structure in mm-hmm. order to determine if it's species A or species B. You told me not just shape, but also number. Well, no, they all have, uh, at least all the species that we have in the eastern U.S., they all have two gonopods. Okay. So it's a, you're essentially looking at the way that they're formed and shaped, you know, mm-hmm. how long the... Um, some of the terminal elements are, they kind of split into two at the end. So tell me what the reason is for having two. I don't know. I'm just I'm uh, curious. I, 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 to be honest with you, I have no idea why in the world other than uh, two's better than one, I guess. <laughs> one might wear out. <laughs> yeah, I was just, I mean, since you told me that the first time, I was, I was curious what the reason for having two was. 
but mm. <laughs> apparently yeah. that's, a, that's a mystery, huh? Yeah, that at least it is uh, as far as I'm concerned. Do you, have you ever uh, bred crawfish like in a controlled environment? So the the new species I've got right now, actually the ones that were on Kentucky Field, I've still got those in a tank yeah. at the house just because the kids are enamored mm -hmm. with uh, with yeah. looking at them and you know checking out what they do from day to day, feeding mm -hmm. them and watching them scurry around in the tank. Um, I have seen, you know, I've got I think two males and one female mm -hmm. in that tank. Uh, there's been three different occasions so far where I've seen them copulating in the mm -hmm. tank. Hmm. So hmm. is that female going to reproduce then? Uh, probably. Actually, we won't know until probably March or April of this year. So okay. the way reproduction works with crayfish is they'll actually copulate at least this species in the fall, and then uh, the female will hold those gametes until in the spring when she will then mix sperm and egg and then hold those eggs underneath of her tail yeah. she'll kind of exude some glue i don't you know i'm sure people have found it's really cool in, the, in mm -hmm. the spring and their their tails kind of folded up on itself mm -hmm. and they'll have a bunch of little eggs that look like uh, uh little bitty pieces of a raspberry essentially mm -hmm. that are kind of held there and she'll hold up because she can't move her body around too much with her tail glued shut mm -hmm. she'll hold on to those for a couple weeks and then Fast forward a few weeks and she'll have 100 to 150 baby crayfish crawling around beside of her. Yeah, that's I, the coolest crayfish I've ever found was in the gorge. I think it was in Chimney Top Creek. And it was a, obviously, a, I'm not gonna be, I could, might have a picture of it actually, but it was very dark and it was very large. And it had like basically 100 tiny little crayfish under its tail at the same mm -hmm. time. So it was basically finding 101 crayfish, but it was cool to see that, uh, that female with all those small, tiny little crayfish attached mm -hmm. to her. That was pretty cool. And they weren't eggs, I mean, they were hatched. Yep, yeah, actually after they hatch out into uh and the little juvenile crayfish, they'll hang around with the mom for about another week or two, or two until it's time to move around. They're literally, when they come out, I mean, smaller than a grain of rice. Oh, the yeah. ones mm -hmm. I found, they were, they were tiny. Yeah. You'd never be able to see them if they weren't attached to the mom, but I'm mm -hmm. assuming that small fish would tear those apart like crazy. Oh, yeah, um, small, small mm -hmm. fish, other crayfish, yeah. uh, dragonfly larvae, just about anything would really? get a hold of them of that size. So, um, shoot, I, literally, before I got off topic there, I had something I was wanting to ask you. Um, reproduction. So basically, in a nutshell, you found this new species. So years and years and years of work. Literally, I mean, so you said three years of work um, documenting the Louisville crawfish, the crayfish. Do you mm -hmm. prefer crawfish or crayfish? <laughs> I grew up calling them crawdads. And then when you get into grad school, uh, they kind of beat it into uh, the the technical term is supposed to be crayfish. So you don't like the term mud bug then? Yeah. I, you know, honestly. <laughs> That's a good old town lure. I've a, got one. Yeah. I've got an old RBS it, mud It's pretty bug. interesting. I saw a map that somebody made up of basically the different regions of the country. And uh, in Kentucky, they're crawdads. If you go down south here into Louisiana, a lot of times they're mud bugs or crawfish. They're crayfish in the Midwest and up into the Northeast. So I guess yeah. it depends on where you're from. C-R-A-Y. F-I-S-H, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. it seems like down I've Lu seen it spelled E-Y sometimes. Yeah. seems like down in Louisiana where they eat more of them, you know, they, they wouldn't call them mud bugs, they'd lean towards crayfish because mm -hmm. it sounds more palatable. You know what I mean? Like I'd rather eat a fish of some type than a bug. Than you know? a bug, mm -hmm. yeah. But it's kind of backwards, but hey, honestly, no, I mean, crawfish is one of my favorite things to eat. Oh yeah, <laughs> they're delicious. I wouldn't eat this one just yet. <laughs> no. But <laughs> well, I'm just amazed there's still 
viable life in Beargrass Creek. <laughs> so, but, oh, these are, where yeah. are these found exactly? So this is uh, Pond Creek. Pond Creek. Uh, down it, southern Louisville. But the other species, the Louisville, Louisville crayfish, crayfish is in, still in Beargrass Creek and it's doing pretty well in there. That's good. Yeah, Beargrass yeah. Creek, if I'm not mistaken. It's I really think, cleaned up for how it was back in the 70s. Mm -hmm. I think before, when I was still at, at EKU, we talked about Beargrass Creek being one of the most polluted yes. waterways in the entire country next to like the L.A. River, right? <laughs> I mean, yeah. It's... Uh, it's pretty bad. It's getting better. And actually, uh, that was part of when I was doing my research through grad school. I started kind of going back through the history of Louisville because you know, the we always seem to you go out in the field and you look at stuff and you always think, well, this is what it looks like right now. Mm. But those species have been around a lot longer than the city of Louisville has. Mm -hmm. So I started kind of going back in time and thinking, OK, well, what did Louisville look like 300 years ago when this mm -hmm. species is there? Well, 300 years ago, you can pull up some old maps, and it was just a little village on the side of the Falls of the Ohio. Mm -hmm. yeah. Back up uh, 15,000 years ago, and there's a, a glacier mm -hmm. 60 miles north of there. Yep. You know, back up about 50 to 100,000 years ago, and there's a glacier sitting on top of Louisville. Yeah. Hmm. So you have to kind of look at this different time scale mm -hmm. in order to think, oh, hey, then these things, you know, how... How does this play into this species' existence here? But uh, back to kind of the historic terms, um, if you look at some of the old documents of Beargrass Creek and some of those streams in Louisville in the early 1920s, uh, it was exponentially worse yeah. than what it is right now. They actually, did the packing industry play a role in that? You know? It did, just that. Uh, there were no sewers. It was basically you know, all open systems that flew, flowed directly into Beargrass Creek is what mm. people utilized for sewers then. Yeah. Um, they actually passed, the Kentucky legislature passed a law in the early 1900s, late 1800s called the Swamp and Swine Act. And the Swamp and Swine Act was focused on Louisville and it was essentially we need to get rid of the wetlands that are down here because of the mm -hmm. diseases associated with mosquitoes. Mm -hmm. And we need to get rid of all these daggone pigs that are roaming through the city mm -hmm. and causing all kinds of additional human mm -hmm. health issues. And that was obviously polluting the streams as well. Yeah. So fast forward a little bit and there's a couple of documents called uh, On the Sewerage of Louisville from 1917 that talks about what the streams, including Beargrass and Pond Creek, looked like then as opposed to what they've done to really improve those systems now. So they're better off now is what you're saying. They're definitely better off now than what they were 100 years ago. So 13 years ago when you were wading through there picking crawfish up and examining the crawfish, what were they like then? Pretty pretty horrible? Uh, they're still not great. They're not a place that I would go to to fish particularly. Oh, okay. uh, and they're they're pretty, pretty rough and you still get a lot of, uh, it's called combined sewer overflows mm -hmm. where essentially the sewer system for Louisville and the drainage system for the streets is all fed into the same system. Yeah. So anytime you have a large enough rain event, they can't contain and treat all of that. So it's just raw sewage yeah. going into the streams. Tell me about a, something that happened to you while you were down there in Beargrass Creek, knee deep in water, <laughs> trying to find this crawfish. You know, there's a lot of times, actually, when I first started this project, I was dating what is now my wife. Mm -hmm. And so I had to drag her along to be my, essentially my field tech out there. Um, my wife's not a big fan of snakes at all. What? And we're down, yeah, yeah, oddly enough, you know, I, I don't mind them. My kids love messing with them. My wife just yeah. cannot stand to be around them. So uh, we're down at Fern Creek and uh, we're down there sampling for crayfish. And there's this big chunk of concrete about the size of a desk. Mm -hmm. My wife's sitting on it taking notes. And I look down and there was, a, I guess, a freshly hatched uh, clutch of northern water snakes and really? there's probably 15 of them crawling around <laughs> underneath of her and she has no clue that they're anywhere around so <laughs> my first concern is 
if she starts screaming and sees these things, the first thing that's going to hit the water is my field notebook that's got two years of data in it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so I try to just kind of gently go over, hey, won't you walk over here real quick and uh, go check this out? And she gets up, still has no clue these snakes are around, and walks over. And then once she gets over there, she sees what was underneath of oh. her. At that point, I already had my field notebook. So <laughs> it was, uh, <laughs> it was yeah. done. That, that would have been one of the better days of my girlfriend's life if she was there. Yeah. <laughs> she got to see all that. She's crazy about it. Um, you never had to deal with crazy people down there? Or? So... There, you know, everybody knows about the homeless problem that Louisville has. Well, it's, I think our whole country uh, has. But yes, yeah, Louisville, yeah. Especially. Louisville, especially, you know, here locally, Louisville's yeah. got uh, got quite a few uh, homeless folks living around there. Uh, that was part of the problem with this project was, you know, most of the time the way you access these streams are to pull off on the side of the bridge and you walk down underneath the bridge and that's where you sample the stream at. Well. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was a eye-opening experience for me to walk down underneath these bridges and see that there's essentially a whole other city mm -hmm. that, that lives underneath there. So never did have too much of an issue with anybody, you know, confronting me. These people are just trying yeah. to survive, trying to exist. But it was uh, pretty eye-opening to be able to mm -hmm. walk underneath the stream and look up, and there may be 10 or 15 people uh, living underneath this bridge. Yeah, and, 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 you know, they're probably just as confused looking at me, like, why, why is this guy out here with a net trying to mm -hmm. kick up uh, bugs and crawdads and fish out of a stream as I am looking up at them. But. And yeah, I've been there before too, uh, working races. Before I worked here, I did hosted events. So we, you know, two or three o'clock in the morning, I'd be going around marking courses for races and going through a lot of the parks that border the Ohio River down there. And there's pretty sizable homeless community in Louisville. And it's kind of in the daytime, you don't really realize it, but it, you know, at night or when you go in those specific areas, you can. A lot of our races were actually to benefit the homeless down there mm -hmm. too. And um, I mean, it's a pretty, pretty good group of people sure you know but we aren't trying to get into the, the demographics of that or what's mm -hmm. going on with the louisville's homeless community but i figured you probably exploring yeah. those creeks and going under the bridges around beargrass probably mm -hmm. had a an interesting person or two yeah it, it's certainly you know when people think about oh yeah you know going out and doing field biology you're thinking about going out to the amazon or you know yeah. in kentucky you're going out to pine mountain and that's yeah. been the interesting thing about this project is when people hear about discovery of a new species they're not thinking about new species being found in Kentucky, let alone in a, our largest urban area. Yeah. Uh, the fact that there's a species that hadn't been found until 2019, 2020, as far as actually getting recognized, mm -hmm. uh, that was sitting in a major urban area on top of a major university, mm -hmm. shows you how much work we have left to do when it comes to mm -hmm. non-game species. Well, that's true. That's very true. I mean, it honestly takes somebody like you with a, who knows what they're looking for with an eye like you have, mm -hmm. you know, who's paying attention to things to, to be able to do that. Like your average person like myself or Lee goes out and we see a, a crawfish, it's, it's a crawfish to us. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't know yeah. enough of it. Unfortunately, I'm thinking, where do I hook this? Yeah. <laughs> that's right. Typically, I go through the I think the a small mouth like yeah. this. Well, and that, to, to be honest with you, that you say it, uh, when I was first approached about doing this project in graduate school, um, the guy that had the funding that was providing me with this opportunity calls me up because I'd, I'd talked to him in the past about getting some funding to go back to grad school or to go to grad school. So about a year later, and at the time, I was focused more on doing bat research. So mm -hmm. at the time, I get a phone call and says, uh, essentially, there's a funding opportunity here. Do you want to go to grad school still? I said, absolutely. What's what's the project? He said, well, do you know anything about crayfish? And my first response was, I know how to put one on the hook. Mm -hmm. yeah. And that's that's it. And he said, well, I guess that's why you'll go to school. They'll teach you the rest of it there. And here it is you know, several years later, and I'm still doing crayfish surveys. Not just that, but discovering crayfish. That's, that's right. Good. Yeah, something that I did not expect to happen in my life. Where'd you go to school again? 
I went to undergrad at UK and then I went to grad school at EKU. Okay, EKU. All right. EKU. All right. Yeah. Yeah. I was going to ask. <laughs> yeah. I have a master's from Eastern as well. So. so when you were doing bat research there, I think I know the answer to this question. Did you work with Copperhead at all? Uh, yeah, I've worked with Copperhead quite a bit over the years. Okay. I've, I've known those guys that, for 15 years or more. I had some buddies that worked there. I still got my Copperhead beanie in the truck. Mm-hmm. It's the one I keep for a cold day when I'm unprepared. It's my emergency beanie. <laughs> but yeah, Copperhead does some interesting stuff. And the bat, the bat research really is interesting. Mm-hmm. Well, before we get off topic, though, basically what I was getting at there, you did a lot of research and put a lot of work into finding this new species. Right. And there's an opportunity there if somebody wants to name it, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Because, and, and I'm just summarizing what you said. When you name the species, you're, you're you know, basically putting in a bid and the winning bidder will get to name it and the money from the bid goes where? It'll go to our Kentucky Wild Program. It okay. just started up about a year and a half or yeah. so ago and it's essentially a fund that we have that is 100% dedicated to research and management of our non-game species mm-hmm. here in the state. And with the, with an emphasis on those that are impaired, facing right. threats, yes. correct? Yes, those at-risk species, again, are the ones that we're focused on. So, so how long have people known about the Louisville crayfish? Has it been around a long time that people knew about it as a separate entity? So the Louisville crayfish was initially described as a new species in the 1940s. Okay. Um, and so this was... You know, when they tell me, all right, this is going to be my graduate school research, the first thing you do is, all right, let's do a literature review to figure out what do we know about this thing. Mm-hmm. So, described in the 1940s, um, another guy wrote a paper in the 1960s that had about a paragraph mm-hmm. that discussed this species. Mm-hmm. And then um, there was a book on the crayfish of Kentucky that was written in 2004 that has about a page and a half on this species. And that was it. Hmm. So it was wide open for, okay, So its well, range is Oldham, Bullitt, Jefferson County. Correct. Right. Well, now that it's been split, uh, the Louisville crayfish is only found in Beargrass Creek in Louisville, and then uh, Harrods Creek in Louisville, mm. and Goose Creek. <clears throat> so it also has a pretty, and when I, and when I, I say the range Harrods for that Creek. species, the only place in the world that you can find that species of crayfish is in those streams. Only wow. place in the world. Mm-hmm. Tell me about... Uh, non-native crayfish to the streams are the problems they they create yeah that's a that's a problem that's hopefully getting a little bit more press um and you know it's something that we that we've all done you want to go introduction yeah, yeah well, you people think about asian carp and trans, you know a lot of juvenile asian carp look like shad so don't mm-hmm. you don't take live bait from one watershed to another right and people think about aquatic vegetation or, or plant species on the bo- on the boats, mm-hmm. right? Going from one waterway to another and you're transporting those things. But people don't really think about it when it comes to crawfish. Right, yeah, they just think, again, a, a, a crawdad is a crawdad. This one may be a little bit bigger than this mm-hmm. one or this one has a little bit different color, but they're all the same species. Yeah. Well, yeah. obviously, they're not. Uh, what we're seeing now is, and it's not just people going and buying bait from a bait store and then bringing it in and either it gets off the hook or at the end of the day, You've got an extra dozen sitting there in the bottom of your bucket, so you oh, just you sling you just, them in. Yeah, water. you just sling them in the water, thinking you're doing something good. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, what happens is that may be a species that isn't native to that stream. Typically, it is something that's not native to that stream, mm-hmm. and then that new species that you have now put into there will outcompete with the native species. Yeah. Which mm-hmm. on the front end, you say, okay, well, you still got crayfish there, crawdads oh, there. What's yeah. it matter? Well, the problem is, you know, all this stuff gets kind of put together like a big Jenga puzzle. Well, mm-hmm. I always like to look at it. And when you start pulling pieces out of that puzzle, 
pull one out, maybe not a big deal. You start pulling five or six out, and the whole thing ends up collapsing. Well, what yep. they've seen with crayfish, especially up in some of our northern states, is... Where, where they're more common for bait. Right. Correct. Uh, what ends up happening in some of the northern states, especially in some of their best fisheries, is that they have taken a species that is actually native to Kentucky called the rusty crayfish. Yeah, I've heard about this. Utilize them as bait up in Michigan and some of the Midwestern states. It has now become established up there, and it will take away all of the aquatic vegetation. Mm -hmm. It just eats it. So you've just lost a major component of your habitat. Is that people traveling from here and going up there to fish? or? Uh, I think a lot of that was actually bait stores okay. selling that bait. Uh, so what ends up happening at that point is, all right, you've just got this lake that now has zero aquatic vegetation. Now you've messed up that fishery. And yeah. now people aren't getting to catch the, the game fish that they were wanting to. Uh, in Kentucky, as I said before, you know a lot of these species are endemic or are only found in a couple creeks. Mm -hmm. So let's say that uh, in the case of this new species, someone goes out to Fern Creek and sains up a bucket of crayfish and think, well, they look just like the ones that I'm catching over here in uh, mm -hmm. the Salt River or in Floyd's Fork. Mm -hmm. Well, now you have spread this new species into a place where it's not originally from. Now we have an interaction here with our native species and who knows what the outcome of that will be. Yeah. So part of that, you know, tossed around the idea of who's going to name this species. And you, like you said, it can be named after, you can be named wherever you want it to be. Yep. So you could, uh, a individual could name it after themselves mm -hmm. or, or a loved one or somebody passed away, or you can name it the Abraham Lincoln crawfish if you wanted to. Mm -hmm. or, That's right. Um, or a company could, could also buy the rights and name it where they wanted to, right? Mm-hmm. So what are some of your, obviously you're not limiting it to any one thing, but what are some of your initial thoughts? Uh, my initial thoughts are that I would like to see this, obviously uh, the first thing is the, the more funding we can generate for this, the better, the better yeah. because we can roll that money into doing additional surveys and additional management work on the ground in Kentucky that mm -hmm. benefits everybody. Yeah. But besides that, uh, this is a good opportunity to basically engage and get a partner. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I say a partner, you know, whether it's an individual or a corporation, if you're going to put the money into having the species named after you or your loved one or your company, you want to see this thing persist. You want to see it thrive. Maybe you're engaged in general crayfish uh, mm -hmm. uh, conservation or just conservation non-game species. I would like to see this as a relationship that moves forward. So. Mm -hmm. For this uh, project, you know, if it's a, uh, you know, bourbon's huge in Kentucky, if mm -hmm. a bourbon company wants to jump on and name it after uh, their bourbon brand, that well, is that's Van Winkle. Great. Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Well, uh, at the same time, fish. you know, if there's a uh, lure manufacturer yeah. or somebody makes artificial bait and they want to have, mm -hmm. you know, they're already making baits, if they want to have their like bait fish, yeah. named after a, uh, a new species, hey, that's a perfect fit in my mind as well. Well, yeah, like you said, bourbon actually goes hand in hand with watersheds. I mean, mm -hmm. uh, we saw it happen last year with some bourbon and some watersheds and of course uh you know water quality it, it, the reason bourbon's big in kentucky is because of the water mm -hmm. in kentucky right. so they go hand in hand and then i, I would think breweries as well and we got a lot of micro breweries mm -hmm. popping up but the bait thing that you hit on i like that because that gives us an opportunity to shoot a segment for kentucky field tv somebody you know names this crayfish and then our newest species in kentucky is this crayfish and then they, they make a bait that looks just like it you know we could go out there and it's almost highlighting what we were talking about a second ago not using live bait because you might mess up an ecosystem use artificial bait exactly so here's an artificial bait that highlights our newest species in kentucky it's almost a, a show opportunity for us and i mm -hmm. kind of like the idea of having another show opportunity
Yeah, yeah. But, so I like I like all those ideas. And of course, you're not trying to cut anybody out, so you can name it the whatever the heck you want to do. No, if 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 Bob is out there as a millionaire and he's always wanted to have a species named after him and he wants to throw enough money at it, uh, Bob, th- Bob's crayfish will mm-hmm. be what it is. He doesn't need to be a millionaire though. He doesn't have to be a millionaire. <laughs> no, I, I, I'd be tickled pink if he was. <laughs> um, but but the, the the point to drive home to folks is is this is a way to raise money that's going to benefit other crayfish species not just crayfish but all, if it's going to kentucky wild it's benefiting all kentucky wild species i know they want us to say kentucky wild not non-game but it's mm-hmm. basically non-game animals yeah. that aren't hunted fished or trapped for right and so you're talking, threatened is with mm-hmm. a special emphasis on those that are threatened right correct well, you're talking raptors you're talking songbirds you're talking bats and and small mammals and salamanders and reptiles and you know amphibians all kinds of different things like that basically just not your game species yeah it's all the other species and honestly as a outdoorsman somebody who buys a sportsman's license every year even if you're somebody who's not interested in those species like it's not your hobby to go out and find them you should like this program because more of your dollars your license dollars are going to work for game species Mm -hmm. because there's a supplementary funding for non-game species you know what i mean and not only that you know a lot of times especially with uh, fisheries uh, one of the issues with bait bucket introductions a lot of times not isn't necessarily the crayfish that you're bringing in but there's all kinds of crayfish diseases yeah. mm-hmm. that will sp- spread from one species especially to another. In captive environments like yeah that. so what ends up happening is uh let's say that you bring in a non-native species of crayfish and it doesn't in and of itself outcompete a native species. It may have brought in a disease that completely wipes out yeah. your crayfish fauna in a stream. So, mm-hmm. you know, let's look locally here at Elkhorn Creek. If something like that mm-hmm. were to happen, imagine what happens to the smallmouth fishery in Elkhorn Creek mm-hmm. if you lose all of your crayfish oh out of God, it. Oh my God, yeah, it uh, crash. It, yeah, it crashes almost overnight at that point. So uh, the, the thing you always have to look at is and, you know, I, I love to hunt, I love to fish, but all of these species are tied together. Mm-hmm. And so you can't just have a focus on one. You have to focus on the entirety of what flora and fauna are on a site, and you have to manage for the entire population there. Um, sorry, I just got a message I was looking at. Somebody sent me a picture of a salamander, and they wanted to know what it was. I think it's dead. I'm not sure. <laughs> you can look at that and tell me what you think. So it was in Adair County. Yeah, that's... Its head almost looked like a hellbender. That, that's what uh, it looks like. It's down by a creek. It looks like a uh, a hellbender. Said he found out about waterfowl hunting in Adair County. Yeah. Its head looks like a hellbender to me. Yeah, um, I don't see the uh, I don't see any gills on it, making me think it's a mud puppy. Yeah. Somebody that's really interesting. Me, yeah, somebody. And hellbenders are not. So, sorry, got a little sidetracked. There, somebody sent me a picture on Instagram of what well, it looks. If you to see be, a hellbender, we're absolutely. asking you to report it to yes. us. Yes. Yeah, we've actually got a. Uh, it's in the fishing guide. We have a little mm-hmm. blurb in, on it. That looks like a hellbender to me, just based on the head. <laughs> I'm not an expert like you are. Buddy of mine caught a big one fishing in Licking River. Mm-hmm. A lot of people catch mud puppies and think they're hellbenders. Right. But Licking River, I know, is a spot where you guys do have. Well, this yeah. one was a big one, and yeah, it? Yeah, Licking, Licking River is one of our better. Uh, streams in the state. Tell me about hellbenders. hellbenders. Since we're suddenly on the topic out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, for people that don't know, hellbenders, our largest uh, salamander we have here in the state, it can get up to about two feet long. Mm -hmm. They're pretty big. They look like big catfish with legs for those of you that haven't seen one. Uh, They're a species that was petitioned to be listed federally under the Endangered Species Act. So we are in the process right now of collecting data to see how our uh, hellbender population is doing in Kentucky. Uh, 
the, the problem with hellbender surveys in general is that they live under these huge flat rocks. So uh, hard to lift, hard to see. Really hard to lift, really hard to see, especially if they're in eight or ten feet of water in mm-hmm. some of the pools in the Licking mm-hmm. River. Yep. Um, you know, a lot of times when we're out doing hellbender surveys right now, we're actually uh, snorkeling with flashlights. And it's kind of like, it's the same concept almost as uh, when you see people noodling for catfish. Mm-hmm. But instead of sticking your hand down in this hole, we're swimming down with a flashlight and kind of putting our head up underneath this boulder under the water and shining a flashlight around to see if it's a snapping turtle or a catfish or a hellbender staring you back in the face. I'm not a big fan of that, personally. <laughs> <laughs> it takes a while to get used to. Yeah. Uh, there's there's no doubt about that every time you stick your head up underneath this rock, you wonder, all right, what's, what's going to be in here looking back at me? And money raised through this project would help with stuff like that. That's, that's, that's correct. right. And what we're doing, uh, what we're developing right now are basically artificial habitats or nest rocks, essentially. Uh, one of the issues that hellbenders have in Kentucky, especially, is sedimentation in the stream. So mm-hmm. you've got this nice big rock that a hellbender wants to live under. Well, if you're getting a bunch of silt and mud and uh, sand coming into the system from the uplands, that then clogs up that space underneath that rock where they can't use it. It's a they're desert to them after that. Yeah, there's there's nothing there for them to live at. There's, it's the same as having your house bulldozed down. Yeah. So what we're looking at right now is building these uh, hellbender huts that uh, some of the folks out of Indiana and some other states have made where they're these concrete uh, artificial uh, rocks, if you want to call them that, that have a little natural cavity underneath them that we can plant out in the streams and hopefully yeah, get right. them to be colonized by hellbenders. Yeah, I like that. Have we placed any of these yet? Uh, we're still, the the tricky thing with them right now is... That's a, that's a great story. Yeah, it's trying to figure out how to get those um, out into the streams. I mean, these things are a couple hundred pounds sometimes by the time you build them. Uh, just got to man smaller. up and carry them out there. Yeah, yeah, just got to throw it on your shoulder. <laughs> uh, but the other thing is getting them uh, firmly attached to the bottom of the stream or placed with other rocks around it so that the next flood event they don't Doesn't wash blast away. Them. So, yeah. yeah, we're just now, we're working on... Uh, and then the other idea is, uh, in some of these areas that do have a little bit of sediment, how to keep that eddy that forms on the downstream side from basically clogging up that hole. So trying to figure out some of the aerodynamics there, or some of the fluid mechanics to get that to wash away. I'm guessing the main reason for the sediment is probably, it's probably wasn't an issue 200 years ago, but changing agriculture and landscape. and I've noticed dreams, I've known well, and I've yeah. seen an increase in sedimentation. Yeah, yeah, a lot of sedimentation. One of my buddies was in streamwater research. Bobby was actually on the podcast, mm-hmm. and uh, he uh, that's what he dealt with primarily. And his job was trying to you know reduce there's sediment issues basically mm-hmm. and trying to uh, reshape um, and use vegetation around streams to keep sediment from doing things like that but so it's had an effect on our hellbender populations what you're saying yep absolutely that makes sense that's a species I've never seen in the wild yeah we uh, need to get you out there and take a look at I'd them. love to do it I've seen them of course at the muscle lab and at Salado there's uh-huh. a hellbender at Salado Maybe two mm-hmm. they're smaller ones though mm-hmm. the ones at Salado aren't that country big country people but, call them water dogs don't right they? Mm-hmm. Water dogs? Because mm-hmm. they're the size them. of a dog? Is that why? I don't, but, I don't know. But that's what they call them growing up. Do they bark or growl? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, they don't make much but when, but noise. They can be aggressive toward lures, correct? Yeah. Right. And yeah, there's a. I used get, to hear a lot of stories of people. I caught a water dog. Now, you know, I don't know if it was a hellbender. Some per people, se, I think I see people post, you know, the fishing Kentucky's rivers, like streams, Facebook page, or Falls of the Ohio. A lot of people catch some mud puppies and yeah. think it's a hellbender. But yeah. Yeah. like you said, when I showed you that picture, you were looking for. For um, gills, mm-hmm. in a way, was it gills or some of them have external breathing? Yeah, there's uh, some mud puppies have these external gills. Yeah, that's what that I was are, thinking. They're like, a, and then uh, 
hellbenders actually uh, take in oxygen through those folds of skin yeah. down the sides of their body. I was going to say, the, the external gills almost look like a hand sticking yeah. out or something mm -hmm. like that. Like I've seen you. Christmas tree, fake right. Christmas tree branch or something like Would that. Would those be more likely what people catch over a hellbender? Uh, if you're talking about uh, fishing, mm -hmm. a lot of times they'll they'll catch hellbenders. We've yeah. got most of the uh, reports that we have uh, end up being uh, hellbenders that people catch on trot lines with chicken liver and uh, you know crayfish tails, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. They'll get out and forage around and uh, that's actually because of how intensive it is to go out and survey for these things looking mm -hmm. underneath rocks. Uh, most of the data that we have on them have come from fishermen over the years. Yeah, a friend of mine sent in a, I mean, it was a, he sent me a mm -hmm. picture, it was a big one. Yep. He caught on a grub. Yeah. It was artificial. Yeah, I had a buddy catch one down in uh, Barron River a few years ago. I'd like to see a helping. I'm going to have to make that a point to go to the yeah. Licking River more. Yeah, next fall. Come have you held a bottle brush crayfish? I have. What is that? Tell me about this. I'm, it's just completely out of left field. <laughs> yeah, well, I've been wanting to ask. Watch your mic there. I don't know. You might mess it up there. Uh, You're good. Better now? Oh, it's probably fine just when you touch it. I'll oh. worry about it. There might, I don't have my headphones in, so I can't hear. But you're good. Tell me about what crayfish. Bottle brush are out of, they're endemic to the Green River, correct? Right, the Green and Nolan River. Okay. Um, and that's the only place they exist. Is that correct? Yeah, uh, that was, so that's in the genus Barbicane Bears. Um, it's I've, I've, the, when I've been fishing Green River and floating it, I've always kind of kicked around. I'd love to just see one. I've seen pictures mm -hmm. of them, but I've never seen Is one. Is this one of the giant crayfish? Yeah, the, but and their antennae look like a bottle brush. That's so why the, they call them the bottle brush Some of the crayfish, crayfish we have are like, what, 12 inches long, 11 uh, inches long? They, so uh, some people may have saw the report out of uh, South Central Kentucky around the Green River from, I think it was last year, where people found, I think it was the sewer department in, I forget what county down there, that they got, got a bottle brush crayfish out of their sewer intake. And they'll get up to nine or ten inches long. That's about the, the extent Pretty of them. But that, that's, that's a good size. That's a miniature to, lobster at that take point. A mean for most mouth people. To, mm -hmm. Mean smallmouth. Yeah, once you get up to that size, and we've got about uh, five or six species of crayfish in Kentucky that get up about that size, where they're they're pretty hefty. Uh, one of them is actually listed as uh, threatened under the endangered species hmm. list. That's strange. It'd take a, I'm guessing a largemouth would still try to choke that bad boy down. I'm sure oh, you I'm get one that's hungry enough. You see some, to hit it. some of the stuff you see bass eat are just ridiculous. Mm -hmm. You see that video of that uh, bass at a Cabela's or a Bass Pro Shop tank eating another one? It's a 12 pounder, ate a two and a half or three pounder hole. <laughs> no. That's ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, a smallmouth would eat a juvenile ball of brush as quick as he'd eat eating a, a oh, yeah. crayfish, wouldn't he? Yeah. You know, and those, those larger. <clears throat> uh, you know, the bottle brush crayfish and some of the other bigger ones like that, uh, kind of like a hellbender. And hellbenders love eat crayfish as well. That's kind of their ma main prey. But uh, similar to hellbenders, those bigger crayfish like that have to have those large slab rocks mm -hmm. to live under. I mean, that's, mm -hmm. that's what their home is. Yeah. And so we're seeing some impacts with sedimentation on uh, crayfish species in Kentucky as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. So I know the Green River, well, I'm thinking to mussels. I'm thinking mussels with money. The Green mm -hmm. River has the most diverse population of mussels in the world, if I'm not mistaken, uh -huh. is a probably so also... Diverse rivers in the world. Well, it's that's what I'm saying. The crayfish the same there? Yeah, there's probably, uh, if you look at that uh, watershed, if you look at the entirety of the Green River watershed, uh -huh. uh, out of Kentucky's 65 species that we have, I'd say that you could probably get, uh, just off the top of my head, maybe 15 different species, either within the stream itself or in the adjacent, uh, the you know, the upland burrowers that have to make the chimneys that everybody sees. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Those, um, so the Green River, correct me if I, is the one near Mammoth Cave, right? Yes. Yes. Okay, I'm going to have to explore that more this year. 
Been it's going a, to Mammoth Cave more over the past year. Oh, it's a, I need to the dam to Greensburg's <laughs> the best smallmouth wander in the state. It's I need to great. take the kayak down there and and do some. I'll go with you. Have some fun. Yeah, I'll yeah. show you where to put in take out. Let's go, Lee. Um, that's great with me. We, we've talked about doing a show on that. When we, well, we, we have done one. We need to do a new one. Yeah, we need I to agree. do an updated Green River trip since yeah. the dam came out. We haven't done it again since then, have we? No, I don't think so. So yeah, I know you've talked to Chad about that. Yeah. Get out there and throw some spy baits with kayaks full of bananas on. <laughs> so that's that's kind of an insider. I may, have, I may have to write the column this week on the, or next week on the spy baits. Yeah, so. we've been talking about doing a couple different shows with with Lee here, mm-hmm. and one of them deals with bananas. I wrote a column a long time ago about why people boaters even more than fishermen consider bananas to be bad luck, and you don't bring them on a boat. You ever heard of that? No. Uh, well, it goes back to the origins of of the banana industry. They're, oh, they're coming a, up through West Kentucky. Well, well, they would the boats they would use to mm-hmm. bring them to New Orleans was the main port. Um, were usually they would push them to the max, and they were cheap boats and beat mm-hmm. up boats uh, because there's not a whole lot of margin on bananas. So, uh, and you want to get them to market as soon as you can because sure. bananas don't take long until yep. they're no good. So, there was an unusual high amount of accidents with banana boats, and over time, this and a few other things got a negative connotation attached to bananas to where, you know, there's, I've seen stickers with bananas and a red line through them, the circle and the red line, like no bananas <laughs> around guides and stuff. Some guides will, are adamant about there's no bananas allowed on my boat. Really? And people on the bass tours mess with each other about putting bananas in like their uh, glove box or under their seat or in one of their, you know, just to <laughs> mess with them. Some won't even wear Fruit of the Loom underwear because banana is one of the symptoms. <laughs> really? Yes. That's ridiculous. That, that but actually, then I told Chase about it. Chase sent me a video of this. They were catching walleye and the whole boat was nothing but bananas. I mean, they had <laughs> dozens upon dozens of bananas and they were sitting there just smacking they, one after another. They so. did that in Canada, though. We need to try it in the U.S. Yeah, that's right. So we're going to potentially go out and fill a boat up with bananas and try to catch some fish somewhere. And uh, then, of course probably donate those bananas to some of Salado <laughs> might want the bananas. I mean, mm-hmm. do they feed anything bananas at Salado? Yeah, I'm not sure. I'd have to think about that. Because, I mean, Salado does use a lot of produce. For, yeah, they do. Sure. Uh, you go out there when they feed the deers and the turkeys and the elk or anything like that. I don't know if banana is a food for anything, though. And a lot of times tarantulas, when they would pick those big chunks mm-hmm. of bananas, would come along for the ride. So when they got into the U.S. and they put a little ice in the car to keep them fresh, tarantulas would come out everywhere. So yeah. that's another negative connotation got attached to them. Fulton, Kentucky had a problem. It was one of the hubs on the Illinois Central. Right. Where they would ship them to, you know, either St. Louis or they'd ship them on to Chicago and they would ice them down in Fulton and they had a problem with tarantulas in town for a long time when right. there was a banana hub. from. Yeah, I knew that they had the banana festival down there yeah. for that reason, but I yeah. didn't know about the tarantulas. Yeah. So we got to we gotta come up with a, a good date to go do this show because I think that'd be a fun one, you know. Yeah. And Lee could tell the story and yeah. we'd educate all of our viewers. As to <laughs> there you go. But I, I learned about it. A friend of mine went uh, his, his parents and him went on a, uh, a charter boat in Florida, and she was carrying some bananas and was going to get on the boat. And he said, ma'am, whoa, 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 whoa. She said, what? He's like, uh, put those bananas on that hook over there, please. And she went, wow, I like bananas. I want to have some for breakfast. He goes, well, no bananas come on my boat. Put them on that hook. Believe me, they'll be here when you get back. <laughs> and he would not have bananas on his boat. So I mean, he told me that, and then that sparked my interest. Wow. Learn um, something new every day. And, uh, one thing I wanted to ask you, have you... Years ago, I was doing some uh, some pieces on Big South Fork, uh-huh. and they were doing a study. And this was this may be b- before your purview um, on 
some really, really old crayfish species that were in Roaring Ponch Creek and in the Big South Fork. Have you ever heard of this? So there is uh, one species the of crayfish. The Smithsonian, did they do a study on it? Or? Uh, I'm not sure if it, who it was. I know that there's a uh, species of crayfish that is found in Roaring Ponch Creek, which mm -hmm. is basically a little tributary to Big South Fork in McCreary yeah. County that yeah. then extends on up into Tennessee. Uh, that's the only place in the world for that uh, species to survive. And I'm trying to think of what the common name for that species is. It comes is. to my memory that uh, it was a very ancient species as well. Mm -hmm. You know, as far as going back, it's one of the, the, the oldest crayfish species that they had found. Did, did you hear yeah. that about it? Uh, you know, there's been a lot of new uh, information looking at genetics and trying to trace back crayfish lineages and seeing how many million years old some of them are. Uh, I can't remember off the top of my head about that species. But yeah, the, the interesting thing is that the species you're talking about that's down in Roaring Ponch Creek uh, is another one that's uh, being petitioned right now for federal listing because it's so rare. It's mm -hmm. only found in this one stream. So if you have one uh, event down there, you could essentially yeah. make this thing and that, I think that was part of the, 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 the study was mm -hmm. saying, hey, if, if we have one mine let go or some yeah. kind of unfortunate event like that, we could lose this species. Mm -hmm. But it just sticks in my mind that it was a very ancient species, and that's one of the reasons that they were interested in it. Right. But this was a long time ago. But. All right. What else you got for me, Zach? Lee, anything? I don't know. What I we, need what to what eat lunch is what I'm thinking. Yeah, okay. we hit the crawfish. I want to talk about what you did. We yeah, talked about We talked. <laughs> I know, man. And I got leftover old Charlie's in there. I got ribs. Um, <laughs> Ribbits? Hell, baby. Oh, just a rib ribs. I can bone in. You know, you mm, gotta take them I off. I love ribs. I um, love ribs Monday. I know. I'm hungry thinking about it. Uh, let's uh, let's uh, skip the sports today because last night was a horrible night. Yeah. I actually, I was deadbeat tired. I think somebody put Benadryl in my food last night or something like that because I've, I've literally went to sleep at 8 o'clock which is ridiculous for I, me. I went to bed right after I had five cavities drilled out oh, the old uh, cavities drilled mm -hmm. out and new ones put in yesterday I was in there for over four hours uh, yeah I was actually year. wondering if you'd be good to go today after yeah that. well but it, it kind of I mean it was you know the leave is good stuff so mm -hmm. yeah um, but it, it kind of put me down so I actually missed I, I was watching the game and we were up 12 and then we were up six and then uh fell asleep and I woke up and uh, then we I mean, were, they got us down six with a minute left. We were back to tight yeah, and I, it was I, just a miracle shot. I got know. to watch the last four minutes of that game because I'd been watching. I was on the way home from church. We struggled I was like, oh, there, It's, it's up, other up 10. It'll be fine. That's yeah, what next, I was thinking. Yeah, yeah. Next yeah. thing I know, I was like, oh, man. I saw the last I shot. I watched it once. I I watched it go in and I turned off the video. I quit. I didn't watch the slow motion replays or anything. <laughs> <I> just, <laughs> Nothing to I see. Yeah. It's, it's sad. But, you know, we've already broken the record for the most top 10 teams to lose to unranked teams this yeah. year. We've already passed the overall season mark, and we're only in freaking January right yeah. now. So it just shows you well, it's we, a toss-up. We usually it's, it's we struggle year. to play down there, too. Yeah. I mean, we, they always to, give us a tough game mm -hmm. down here. Duke lost to Clemson. Yeah. I mean, you know, we lost, uh, well, now a couple teams. And it's just absolutely ridiculous this year, and I would not – I have no idea who's going to win. So, yeah. It's not Gonzaga, Duke, I mean, Louisville, Kentucky, who's your pick? It's all up in the air. But uh, let's, I'd say we call it quits. I appreciate you coming on, Zach. Unless you got anything else you want to throw out there at me? No, no, it's been fun. Nothing at all. All right. You, when are we going to go? If you had, okay, one last thing. <clears throat> Excuse me. I know you're a waterfowler. Uh-huh. you had any luck at all this year? I actually passed up on a goose hunt this morning to come in and do the podcast. Oh, my gosh. Oh, yeah. well, we're sorry. So I'm sure I felt my phone buzz, and I, I think I'm sure my brother-in-law has... Uh, probably shot his limit by now it's I been really know. spotty this year with the yeah, warm weather well, it's been a bad year for it um 
the, I think the thing that inspired them to go today is yesterday we picked up a bunch of new birds up in Henry County, mm. and so mm. you know while, while they're there, you better something cold up, up north. Yeah, push that's them that, down. That's yeah. something we're going to talk to Brunches about soon. Try to mm-hmm. have Brunches on talk waterfowl and why it's been a little bit spotty. Yeah, um, but maybe your well, phone is buzzing for the same. Sixty nine degrees yesterday. Yeah. yeah, I mean maybe your phone's buzzing for the same reason mine was buzzing last last uh, Thursday when Lee went fishing and I didn't go, <laughs> and they just got absolutely scum. <laughs> yeah, we got. I mean, place yep. of, fish same place. So just one of those days. Yeah. That's right. All right, guys. Well, I appreciate you coming on. All right, thank, thank you. you. All right. You.